Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it there. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Twelfthfield, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you surely man? Hello there and welcome to Monday's Irish Times Second Cubs Football Podcast. Owen, Ken and Murph, ready to go? Hi Owen, are you? Hello there, Owen. Good, I'm ready to laud, indeed, we're ready to laud Arsene Wenger's Arsenal oh. for producing one of their group, probably their, one of their best big game performances in years, certainly, complete with one goal that neatly sums up everything that their manager believes about how the game should be played. Which one do you mean, the Ozil Sanchez one? Or no, the, you mean no, the, the Walcott, Walcott one? one. The Ozil oh, Sanchez yeah. one was superb, but that was a breakaway. I don't think Arsene yeah. Wenger you know, really... At the start, anyway, was it? Oh, you love to break away at the start. On oh, that's it, the, of course. That's what the thing. About yeah. He's gone back to it now. You see, that's it. He's gone back to it. Overmars and Elka love those guys, and now it's Nuremberg. Uh, yeah, he's he, he he now he he doesn't want to walk the ball into the net necessarily. You know, it's okay if we kick the ball into the net as well at high speed. That's okay. He's open. He's opening up like a flower opening its petals to the morning sun. So they walked one in, and they counterattacked one in. And I, I, th- I thought of a clever finish by Ozil, actually, sort of side-footing into the ground. Looked a bit jammy, and maybe it was. It if, was, was a, if, it was a, if it was a player who wasn't ridiculously skillful, I'd say, that's a jammy finish. Yeah, yeah. But I'm inclined to give the Ozils of this wor- world the benefit of the doubt when they do something like that. Well, do I you- think the Ozils of this world are, you know, getting a pretty good deal off you there, Ron. <laughs> uh, because yeah. I do think he was just trying to regulation volley the ball into the He didn't net. want to but bounce I, it down and up and over. I and think he probably... History written by, is written by the winner, so... He would have rather if, it, if the ball had... You know, yeah. if he deposited in the top corner with a meaty volley. A ferocious velocity flying past the goalkeeper. I think that's what he saw in his mind's eye. A sort of a Benson-type connection. Um, yes. But if... Uh, You're obsessed with that Benson goal these days. Bloody good goal, I want to. It was a great goal. Benson, Iniesta, Jeremy Goss, all the greats. Uh, in, if <laughs> Iniesta... But, but the most important thing, of course, is the angle uh, of that volley. And the angle was enough to post and perfect. Exactly. Not a bad way for Arsene Wenger to kickstart his third decade at the club. Uh, it's time for Kennedy's report on sport. Yeah, so we will get back to Arsenal. Well, actually, we can talk a bit about Arsenal now. I mean, it was so good. It was kind of... Arsenal have, have begun to show a couple of different sides of themselves. Um, there was a significant game... Was it last season or the season before? God, my memory's gone now. But it was when they played away at Manchester City and beat them 2-0. Was that just last season? Uh, Santi Cazorla in central midfield um, and, a, and a quite different approach to the game from what we'd been used to. Arsenal, remember, were getting just pounded by Manchester City year after season after season, season after season. So eventually after, you know, six or seven seasons of just getting pounded by Man City, Arsene Wenger sat down and said, do we need to change something? Do we need to change something about the way we go about these games? And they rolled out this uh, quite new... Um, January 2015. Uh, Ken. January 2015. So that is in fact. I, was just, I knew it immediately. I just wanted you to talk yourself out. I didn't want to interrupt your flow. That uh, was in fact uh, last the season before last. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so 
uh, they played this kind of, uh, you know, they were they were able to sit in behind the ball. They kind of closed down the space. They played. They did a Jose Mourinho on it, and they come out, they uh, came out with a two nil win away to City, which was like. You know, one of the best results Arsenal had in years. But the notable thing was that it was just a completely different style from what they usually do. Um, against Chelsea on uh, on Saturday, it was it was more like an old style, like like we've been talking about, more like a, a an Arsenal team from the title winning years. What I mean is not a team that wants to spend loads of time on the ball necessarily and pass the ball around. Although they did, you know, there was a lot of passes leading up to that Walcott goal. But also the kind of uh, in, the intensity, the speed of counterattack, um, the extremely brutal beating that the two central defenders dished out to Diego Costa was a notable feature of this. This is Mustafi and Koscielny who took a real zero tolerance approach to Diego Costa. Every time the ball came near him, they were there kneeing him in the back, kidneys, um, the tailbone. Whoa. Yeah, nasty business. And he and and Diego Costa is a player who who. You know, often, you know, he he will try to psychologically get the better of his opponents. He actually seemed intimidated by what was happening to him. He didn't at any point really fight back in any effective way. He was just, he was kicked out of the game. This is different from what we're used to seeing from Arsenal over in recent seasons. Uh, if they can kind of keep that sort of thing going, um, it looks pretty good for them. As for Chelsea, this is the same as happened last week. Um... The, I mean, Conte, if, you, if you've seen Conte afterwards, he was getting very exercised in the press conference. And you wondered, are we going to see the explosion, the first eruption of Mount Conte? Oh, even in the post-match interview, it was like, whew. Yeah. It was just the, the way, there was, it's just his delivery. It wasn't even so much what he said. It's just, he, he had the, he had that intense look to him. Mm. Speaking in a very low voice, really letting the pauses do their work. Mm. Dragged me in anyway, Ken. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, well, maybe he should have. You know, I, I wonder has he has he uh, uncorked any of this on the players during the week because it didn't look as though they had. It didn't look as though the players had met up at all in the week between getting beaten by Liverpool and getting beaten by Arsenal because it was the same. And you know, it's no use Antonio Conte um, acting like a tough guy in front of a room full of journalists if he doesn't get this message across to his team and. I was particularly struck by by uh, the fact that um, Conte uh, Conte talked obviously in, in the public, the sort of broadcast press conference about uh, you know we win as a team, we lose as a team. I am responsible, my staff responsible, my players are responsible, uh, and seemed to say largely the same thing in the, in, in the little huddle for the Monday journalists. And yet some of the newspapers have have the word spineless in quote marks. Antonio Conte called his players spineless. How did they find that out? Um, I think that's interesting. I mean, at, at half time, you know, you're spineless. And, and they were. I mean, fair enough uh, in that case. But, you know, he said, I want to keep it all private. And then it sort of comes out. I'm not really sure exactly yeah. where it comes from. But uh, anyway, uh, we will talk about that game a, a bit to Jonathan Wilson later. But for the time being, I want to ask you, Owen, and maybe you, could, you too, Kieran. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the last time you asked a question, you that, got that's it. Happened there, I got it before you'd even had you even finished the yeah, question. Well, I hadn't asked the question. Do you at think all. we should uh, give on a chance to answer this one? Yeah, you asked me a question last week, and I answered it before you'd asked. So yeah, that's so now, now so, so you want me to do it? Okay, I'll do yeah. it again. Um, Theo Walcott. No. What's the question? The question is: Who is Tony Pulis's most respected man <laughs> in football? The who, man most. Res- who the man Tony Pulis respects more than any other that he's met in the game, and it's been a long career, around a thousand games as manager. Part of the band of brothers, as Alex Ferguson apparently calls the 25-man club uh, that uh, has managed a thousand matches. Oh, you get the answers in the question. Alex Ferguson. Actually, no. Oh. Uh, what about uh, Mark Hughes, his successor at Stoke? No. No. Not sure uh, about that. Sparky, lovely player Sparky, and mm. of course as a patriotic Welshman. Uh, who can forget Sparky's uh, great contribution over the years? But no, John Charles, Gentle Giants, John Toshak. No, and the, answer, the answer is in Paul fact Bowden. Gary Mabbitt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you, Ked, that if we kept doing this until midnight tonight, 
Yeah. Until the start of the first presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, we would not have gotten to Gary Mallon. He just needed to take us down a peck or two, Murph. That's why he's giving us such a yeah. And why does Tony Pulis respect Gary Mabbitt more than anybody else? And I am. Uh, I'm getting this this story from Daniel Taylor, who, who wrote an interview, who had an interview with Tony Pulis. His self-medicating of, of his uh, medical condition? Well, Brist- I respect the hell out of Gary Mabbitt for At that. Bristol Rovers, when I started as a 17-year-old, I watched Mabs at the back of the bus injecting insulin into his thigh because of his diabetes. One Christmas, I was injured and had to go in for training, or for treatment. He was 16 or 17 years old. He was out with a load of balls on the training pitch. And that was Christmas morning. Can I got it right. right? Yeah, well, it's just, I just thought it was interesting that, Gar- that Tony Peerless respects Gary Mabbitt more than Alex Ferguson, more than anybody, more than, more than Johnny Walters, more than any of these great characters he's come across in the game because of his diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, injecting insulin. Yeah. Well, I just think it's important to get, to get that out there. Because us type 1 diabetics, we haven't got many positive role models out there. Yeah. It's, you know, Scott Malkinson. Scott Malkinson has a lisp and diabetes. Who's Scott? He's a character in South Park who has a lisp and diabetes. Oh, okay. He's bullied by the other children because he's always saying that he's tired and he needs to eat sugar. (laughs) Okay, any others? Any other like who's the what's the hall of what's the diabetes hall of fame? Uh, okay, well, hang on. One of the Dublin, not Ireland winners in, of recent years. I'll try to remember who it is now. Before just throwing out names. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not Nolan, that it's wasn't it? Kevin Nolan. Yeah. Look, all I'm Score saying is score of one of the iconic points in 2011 Ireland final game. I love, I love this fact that Tony. Just Peters. double checking that now. Myself and Murph. Yes, oh, yes, he, yes. Yeah, yeah, he right, recognizes yeah. that the the path that this type of diabetics are on is just a little bit, a little bit rockier, a little bit steeper. Some of those, but you won't hear us complaining. Oh no! You 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 will hear you asking me to get you a cup of tea with five sugars in it. Five sugars? Come on, two sugars. I hope you're not putting five sugars in those teas. <laughs> Kevin, I'm concerned about you. Kevin Owen. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that's the way to help you, but I I you know I'm sorry. Here's an old interview, with Kevin Owen. Yeah. I took a lot of encouragement from the likes of Gary Mabbitt. I never saw him play, but I heard of this English footballer playing with diabetes. And Steve Redgrave winning an Olympic gold medal with diabetes right. too. So it's Redgrave's just another challenge. Wow. So there's a, whole, there's a whole Hall of Fame there. Yeah. Um, You're in there, Ken. Well done. Um, so, <laughs> well. so the inspirational Gary Mabbitt. But what else? It, I mean, Daniel Taylor got some decent stuff out of time. Because I, partic- I mean, this is his line rather than Pulis's. But he says, some of the kids these days drive him crackers. They, they would be the... You know, millennials, I suppose, uh, generation that makes up uh, all of today's footballers, I guess. Uh, the game's gone Hollywood. The biggest thing is giving them too much too soon. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we spoil them before they've achieved anything. Great. Uh, the I, call for uh, institutionalized hazing is back once more. Tony Pulis would actually like to have these millennials put together in a chain gang and made to break rocks for two years. I'm sure that he would absolutely approve of that. Sheriff Rick Arpaio. Isn't that your man's name? Who? Sheriff Sheriff Arpaio. (laughs) (laughs) He would basically... He would have... There's nothing he wouldn't have won in the 1970s in English football. (laughs) Would have done the lot. You wouldn't have heard of Brian Clough. Bloody, bloody incredible. He also... uh, He talks a bit about losing it in players. Can't do it anymore. Do it sometimes, but... You know... Just the players these days have gone soft. And, you know, when a man, he, he, he's reluctant to address the, the story of James Beattie, uh, headbutting James Beattie while completely naked. Yeah. Uh, he's reluctant to address that, but he certainly doesn't say it didn't happen. Uh, but that kind of thing is just becoming increasingly difficult to get away with in the modern workplace because of health and safety. You've named an incident there. Fair play to you. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know you can't you, you can't get angry with these players, and also when you lose a game, this is something I saw also from from David Moyes. When you lose a game, the misses, he says, "I've got a little room at home that I go into, kick a few cats around. There is just a television in there. My wife brings me in my food and a glass of wine. Then she leaves me until the morning. I don't sleep much. Losing a game of football, even when you played well, kills you. It must be a nightmare for football managers' wives putting up with us." Uh, David Moyes was saying the same thing. Apparently, there's a room in his house that he goes, and his wife just apparently call, phones him up if uh, if she wants something. 
She just phones because... Why, why would you marry a football manager? <laughs> well, so not necessarily but, a football manager when you marry them. But yeah. I'm sorry. Where, how do these men get the idea that this is... Acceptable behaviour. <laughs> like, they need to get a grip. Yeah. Like, they really need to get a grip. What this? They've got a stressful job, Ken. Well, they, you know, they're just in you there know, working themselves their wife, up. That wife has no stress. I don't know what she does. For a living, I don't know. But it's, it's just... They've got to be able to deal with it a bit better than this. You know, I'm yeah. not saying they have to be out like, you know, doing the rounds of the of the neighborhood, knocking on doors for some, you know, raising funds or some something like that. I'm not, I'm not saying they have to be 100% pro-social, but don't lock yourself in a cell and and force your wife like to build ring a you. cell first. You know, the the idea that oh yeah, this room. I know we we talked about it, this being a spare bedroom, but instead it's going to be <laughs> my uh, guilt and shame and anger man cave. <laughs> uh, that I'm going to use during, throughout my football management career. I mean, but, I'm not entirely sure about that. But didn't you win today, love? Doesn't matter. Uh, just a couple of hours. He's just in there playing like uh, PlayStation for like ten hours, scrambling horribly every time he hears the door the doorknob turn. No, no, still, still annoyed. Who still refills? Annoyed. Don't his, mind me. Who refills his glass? Uh, if if she, if, he, if she pours a glass of wine for him and then he doesn't see her again until the morning, he doesn't say what size the glass is. Maybe it's one of those glasses that you can pour an entire glass of bottle of wine into, like a pint glass. Or maybe he just doesn't drink to excess. Owen, this is Tony Pugh's we're talking about. Maybe he knows when to say stop. On, yeah. Not everybody necessarily has to drink the whole bottle. You know what I'm saying? Well, you're the one who said the whole bottle. I never said it meant a whole bottle. I was just thinking half a bottle might be about the right amount after a stressful day at the office. Anyway, that's that's Tony <laughs> Pettis. One all against Stoke, which was a which was an okay result. Um, Don't think he needs to be locking himself in the the dungeon for that. No, no. Surely he could, he he'd be able to maybe come down and have dinner with the you know with the with Mrs. Pettis. I don't know. But um, what else was going on? Jose Mourinho. Mm-hmm. Good weekend. He uh, he bit the bullet out. He grasped the nettle. He dropped Wayne Rooney uh, and Marwan Fellaini. Let's not forget that. Um, Manchester United promptly raced to their biggest halftime lead since they beat Arsenal 6-1 uh, in 15 years ago. Uh, Rooney, of course, applauding the goals like the good club man that he is. Clearly dying inside, though. No? Oh. You know, would you be dying inside? Yeah, probably, yeah. Um. You know, maybe he can take well, maybe pleasure. Maybe he's just rotated the, out, you know? When you said he's, it's normal, he's happy because his team won. Of course, he's an Everton fan, though. Um, I don't know. I don't know how he feels. Is he, is he an Everton? Is he not a Manchester United fan now? I don't know. I mean, he I can probably he, commit a bit of time to thinking about that now, <laughs> given he's going to be watching quite a bit of football <laughs> over the next couple of months. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, the, the interesting thing about all this was was all the noise that took place against him and Mourinho's sarcastic comments about Einstein's all the Einstein's out there by which he means very stupid people bad people and uh, you know there was all kinds of like what about Rob Beasley the journalist formerly well once so close to Jose Mourinho former journalist in the News of the World and the Sun um, Chelsea supporter covered the Mourinho glory years if you look at his Twitter, you'll see that the picture is still uh, Rob Beasley and Jose Mourinho sort of embracing each other or going in for going in for a hug. Uh, but he's brought a, a book about Jose Mourinho, like inside Jose Mourinho or something along those lines. And he uh, he's he's kind of I don't know how close they are anymore, Owen. Is <laughs> what I'm saying. There might be no more hugs. I don't think so. I don't think so. And already that hug now looks a little bit like Judas striding up to Jesus and saying, come here, you. Come here, you. I've got something for you. Let the big bear get his paws on you. I have to feed, I have to feed the Einsteins, Mourinho said. I have to feed the... They cannot coach. They cannot work. They can only speak. Uh, I must feed them. You know, I'm happy because I do a lot of work for charity and I'm feeding all these parasites, is what he meant by Einsteins. But... Uh, Rob Beasley, you know, the, the unkindest cut of all. How could you do this to me, Rob? His book is full. Of, I mean, his book had this quote about, I will break Arsene Wenger's face. One of these days I'm going to get Arsene Wenger. I'm going to break his face, said Jose Mourinho. In uh, London Cockney accent. accent. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, it was, he, was, he was being a tough guy. Uh, Arsene Wenger was going to pay for that. Well, this was around the time, I think, of, you remember when Wenger gave Wenger that little 
Wenger gave Mourinho that little shove. Oh, yeah. And apparently Mourinho's like, oh, one day, on these days, I'll meet him. Oh, I can't do anything out there because they'll find me. <laughs> <laughs> they'll, they'll find me if I do anything out there. But, you know, if, if we... If find me or find, find me? Find me. Find me, okay. But, find you know, me. I'll... One of, one of these days down in Dark Alley, I'll meet that guy and I'll break his... I'll break two bones in his face. <laughs> so he says. Um, so this isn't great. Chelsea doesn't want that story being coming out. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, the thing about this is that some of the stories, I think, are kind of almost meant to be flattering and yet still don't... Still somehow manage to make Marino look worse. Uh, one of them I have to, I have to mention... Um, I, I quote here from Rob Beasley's books, or rather the ex- excerpt that, that appeared in the Daily Mail. On Chelsea's pre-season tour of the USA in 2013, I stumbled across a most remarkable scene. As I turned a corner in the team hotel, there, lying face down and stretched out on the floor, was Jose Mourinho. Chelsea doctor Ava Carnero was attending to him, along with Chelsea's player liaison officer, Gary Staker. I immediately strode down towards the prostrate Chelsea manager and called out, what does he call out? He says, Wow! What a great story this is! The look of shock on the faces of Carnero and Staker was priceless. But then I heard the weak, muffled, hoarse voice of Mourinho saying, No, no story, no story. I'm fine. He didn't look fine or sound fine at all. But the doctor was with him and it was obvious from the reaction of all around that I was a very unwelcome figure in proceedings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but... I'm sorry, but what's your reaction? When you see a man lying face down, being attended to by a doctor, not just any man, but Jose Mourinho, the manager of Chelsea, do you stride up bright-eyed and say, what a great story this is? No, concern for my fellow my fellow Human man. being? Yeah, of course. I found that absolutely incredible. Was it not just a joke, though? Owen, there's a time and a place for jokes. The immediate aftermath of a, an apparent collapse that you have no... You have no knowledge of, of how it came about. Is not the moment. You know. What I mean? You know what I'm saying. I I would have thought the appropriate thing to do for for from one human being to another would be. Are you okay? Are you all right, mate? Obviously, uh, you know I've got a job to do, and I may well do that job in a number of minutes. But right now, my concern is for you, Jose. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you won't need to talk. You know, you won't even need to talk. Obviously, he didn't go with the story on that occasion of Mourinho's collapse. Uh, but he has done now. <sighs> Another Mourinho book to get your teeth in skin. I like it. Oh, uh, I don't know if I'm going to. Well, look, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen anything yet to suggest it's going to be quite as good as the previous Mourinho book that I read. But you know, let's wait and see. Yeah, uh, where are we? Liverpool. Uh, yes. Uh, the rise and rise of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool. Terrific, terrific results. Um, maybe Rooney can take inspiration from Alberto Moreno, who, according to Jurgen Klopp has been Liverpool's best player in training over the last few weeks. He has taken the situation brilliantly and is in a really good moment, says Jurgen Klopp, who's apparently on, on Monday Night Football tonight uh, with Jamie Carragher. Uh, I don't know if Neville's on as well. Probably he is, I suppose. Um, but it's interesting, you know, if Moreno's attitude has improved after being dropped. I mean, maybe, maybe with Rooney, what's going to happen here is, you know the way if you have something and you're worried about losing it, that's a kind of a head-wrecking situation. But once you've lost it, the idea is to get it back, and maybe it's almost easier for him to focus. I don't, I don't know. It's well, a difficult one to, to accept being dropped, and it's difficult to see how he can yeah. come back in for, you know, when they played so well without him. I was surprised that he'd only been dropped once before by, unless he'd been dropped in the um, Ferguson days, but by only dropped once by Van Hal. Yeah. For some reason, I, w- I would have thought he would have, he, that he would have lost his place more. maybe there are some times where you're not starting and it's not officially a dro- you know you're recovering from an injury or th- this that and the other but yeah according to all the reports th- th- this is the first time he's been dropped since the one time he was dropped uh, on uh, St. Stephen's Day yeah. a few years back under Van Hal I, sh- I should mention just before I move on the, the Carragher thing Carragher's thing over the weekend about um, he was he was annoyed by this uh, reaction to something we were talking about uh, to Mourinho criticising Luke Shaw, mm-hmm. or that criticism sort of becoming public, and you know Luke Shaw apparently was a little bit upset about it, and he was injured a little bit, and it wasn't really fair, and some of the players didn't like the fact that Luke Shaw was being picked on. Carragher said, players these days are babies. It drives me crackers, what is going on with the kids in football today. <laughs> uh, so Carragher 
uh, Carragher, right, he basically says, look, you know, managers have to be allowed to, to criticise players. How else do you expect them to get their message across in certain situations? Gary Lineker was approvingly retweeting and saying, you know, well said. Mm. Well said, Cara. Um, Gary Lineker, who, who <laughs> apparently berated Terry Fennick for failing to chop down Diego Maradona as he ran through to score the you know, greatest goal in the history of the World Cup. Fennick was on a booking. Merlinaker <laughs> was like, why didn't you take him down? Never been booked, Gary Lineker. <laughs> if <laughs> you get two of these in a game, Gary, I know you've, you know, you've never even thought of this. But, um, but, but Cargill cites two examples. He says, listen to this. Uh, which manager said the following? We were playing really good football, and all we needed was to see the game out by keeping possession. But Nanny decided to try and beat a player. Uh, we lost the ball, and they got a penalty. Also, I took Wayne off because Villa were a very fast young side, full of running, and their substitute was running past him. <laughs> Who guessing said, that was a certain knight of the realm? Oh, yes, it was. SAF. He he did this all the time, apparently. No, he didn't. No, he really didn't. He didn't. In this situation, the, the nanny one that Carragher mentions, the Manchester United played 40 more games this season. Nanny played in 12 of those games. After this incident that he talks about against Chelsea. Um, and he ended up getting sent off against Real Madrid, so maybe maybe 12 was too many. The other one, the Wayne Rooney against Aston Villa one, was like the last home game. Ferguson's last home game. At a time when he was already running Rooney out of the club or doing his best to do it. It was like he was, you know, like those presidents signing pardons. Yeah. Like Ferguson was trying to sign a death warrant for, for Rooney's <laughs> Manchester United career, literally being dragged away from the desk and didn't quite get time to, to make his mark. Yeah. And that's, you know, those are the circumstances in which he came out with these comments. I think, I think you would really have to look through a lot of comments uh, after a lot of matches to find... Like Ferguson is comparable. the exact example of don't do it and then absolutely harangue them in private. Absolutely. Like, abuse the players, abuse bully them, fr- them horribly. Them, abuse them, whatever. You know, the, 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 they have to believe that the threat of actual physical violence from you is credible. Yeah. They have to believe that. You can't actually do it. You can sometimes. I mean, there, there was the Beckham thing. Mm. But they have to believe that it could happen. Because otherwise, it doesn't, it's, you're just a shouting man. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But, you know, in in relation to this thing of players being babies, Carragher can think back to an incident in his own career when Steven Gerrard uh, was taken off by Gerard Houllier in a game against Basel in the Champions League, taken off 3-0 down at halftime, and he took Gerrard off and then slammed him afterwards. Said, oh, you know, he really needs to sort his head out kind of thing. Not, not in any really specific way, but he basically said Gerrard's head wasn't in the game. I had to get him out of there. Gerrard blew up over that. You know, he was furious like, you know, t- talking about wanting to leave the club. I've been betrayed. You know, this was the way he was reacting to it. Big uh, talks with the manager and all sorts of things. Turned out that Gerard's parents were splitting up at the time. You know, he didn't, right. he had bad situation at home. Uh, he hadn't told Julia about it. But, you know, his reaction to it was not like, uh, like, like Roy King getting punched in the face by Brian Clough. Oh, I deserved it. <laughs> I, I probably did deserve it after that back pass. You know, it was... <laughs> It, it, it's, not as, it's not as though players basically have never liked being criticised. They react really badly to it. The more personal it is, the more violent their reaction. That hasn't changed. And it's why it continues to be a bad idea. Yeah, and, it, and it's weird. Like the Ferguson, you can, sure, you can pick out two examples from 26 years. But the central truth of Ferguson's entire time in, in charge of Manchester United was nothing gets out of the dressing room, I'll say what I like, but I'll defend them to the hilt. Mm. Like that's the central truth of you know, of Ferguson on this issue, which is kind of, so it's kind of odd to bring him into it. Yeah, uh, but you know, he, he, I suppose it's, it's an argument. Um, on the subject of, of criticising players, this, this Klopp, uh, who's taking some friendly fire from Mamadou Sacco. Oh yeah. And Mamadou Sacco posting on Snapchat that he, you know, he's been fit to play for ages and the one thing he can't take is the lie. He's using, he's using a few, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a scout soldier in my Liverpool country. You know, this, he's, he's, Really au fait with the, you know, the, the, the lingo. Uh, he's using the, the language of the cop. He's, he's fluent in cop, copies. Uh, but uh, he is having a pop with his manager, his, his incredibly popular and successful manager. <laughs> I just don't it's a bit know. the Yaya Torre uh, uh, agent uh, about this one. Uh, yeah, except it's, he can't even blame his agent, it's him. Um, so it's like, what are you doing? You know, what, what do you think is going to happen now? Like, do you think that, that calling Klopp out, he's going to be like, oh, actually, you know, 
that Snapchat posting has at has finally forced me to Saturday admit, night, Sunday morning. I, I, I've, I've, I'm wrong. Sacco, first name in the team sheet for the next game. It's not going to happen that way. But they asked Klopp about it. He says, um, I was kind of confronted with this. Uh, somebody told me this morning there was something I should know about. Actually, in a match there, really in a completely wrong mood to think about things like this. I knew something was on the thing that neither of us used, by which he means Snapchat, the social network. But it's not the right moment to speak about it. Most of the times in life, it makes sense to think about something. Then it's more likely to give you the right answer. It's not positive, I would say. I haven't decided when I uh, will address the situation. I'll do it when I think it's the right moment. But it's not Christmas. Uh, so I imagine there's probably another behind the behind closed doors thrashing coming the way of Mamadou Sacco. But even there, he doesn't really say anything too bad. I'm reminded, I'm reminded here of the counterexample uh, of Mourinho with Schweinsteiger. Oh, yeah, ruining it. And it wasn't even from the player himself. It was the way they were talking about him. I thought they'd be out back waiting to, to pick him up, to bring him back to Germany. Yeah, that's the, that's the way I thought that they have such a high opinion of him. I thought, thought, thought they'd be over here getting him back. You know, that's, that's maybe the kind of thing that will annoy a player a bit more. That's it for Ken Early's Report on Sport. Chief, you don't got this out with mother will. You're a wee mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Butcher in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? You just need to fucking work, you wanna? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! He's your biggest fool in Manchester. Hey, Jonathan Wilson is ready to talk to us about an unbelievable weekend for Arsene Wenger who couldn't keep the grin off his face. Ken, this question, you've, you've given me a question here. It's just too good. I can't take it from you. You asked Jonathan this opener here. So um, looks great on paper. Jonathan, as Arsene Wenger's career at Arsenal stretches into its third decade, is there a possibility that his career could form a failure sandwich with 10 years of failure sandwiched by two thick slices of success? <laughs> Um, probably not, I'd say, no. I mean, I, I guess it could be some kind of, uh, like a croque monsieur, maybe, with sort of the, the bread of success, and then a kind of not particularly nice... The cheese of, of failure, and then the <laughs> egg of, of success. But in some kind of, kind of nice sprinkling on the top, to just to finish things. Okay. Um, but, I mean, no. I mean, they, they, they were much a better side on Saturday, but I think that says more about where Chelsea are at the moment than where Arsenal are. They were amazing on Saturday, though. Not just much better, Jonathan. They were... The, the second goal, was the second goal in particular, was just such an Arsene Wenger goal. It could not have been more perfect for Wenger at this point of his... of the evolution of the team. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's... I mean, Arsenal's relationship with Chelsea is very, very strange. If you look back over their, their past results, they, they really go in block because like, the two of them can't be good at the same time. So, I, 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 Arsenal barely beat Chelsea in the 60s, they barely lost them in the 70s, and then there was you know, the, the uh, what was it, the 2004 Champions League semi-final, quarter-final when, when you know, the polarity flipped from being always Arsenal wins to always Chelsea wins, so may, maybe this is things you know, moving back in Arsenal's favour um, I, I think in terms of sort of settling some of the discontent that had been there after the first two games of the season this obviously is, is a, uh, a huge help Um but I, I still, you know, however well Arsenal play, and you, know, you think back to the game when they beat Manchester City at home just before Christmas last season, when you thought, oh, they finally cracked it. This is the year when they really make a run at this. They, 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 there's something then goes wrong. I mean, I'm, uh, last season it was that four 0 defeat to Southampton, and suddenly everything fell apart. Um, so I, mean, I was looking into this from a psychological point of view, and um, do you know Abraham Maslow, the the American psychologist, the guy who came up with the hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. He has this theory, the uh, the Jonah complex. So he, he takes the, you know, the, the example of the biblical figure of Jonah, who was sent by God to go and prophesy the destruction of Nineveh, and bottles out of it, uh, tries to run away, gets on a boat, massive storm. The the sailors on the boat, so hang on, this storm doesn't feel natural. Jonah goes, ah, you, you know what, lads, this, this, this might be my fault. They chuck him overboard, he gets swallowed by the whale, which is a bit everybody knows. So Maslow's theory is that... Um, there is a certain type of person, or, or by extension, sports team, 
who struggles to deal with the responsibility of their own talent. That, that they, they would rather, rather than testing that to, to its maximum and failing, they would rather preemptively have an excuse. So I think you see that with Arsenal in Europe repeatedly, that again and again and again, they do something stupid in the first leg of a two-legged tie. So they can then have a heroic near comeback in the second leg, but it doesn't quite get there. But they can always say, oh, you know, if we hadn't been terrible in that half hour in the first leg, or each season, yeah, if we hadn't just lost those four games in a row in, in March, or whatever it happens to be. Um, so you suspect that however good Arsenal are, they're going to have one of those little runs of three or four games, and they'll say, oh, you know, we had half a dozen injuries, or whatever the excuse is, and they'll, they'll find a way not to uh, properly challenge. Well, that has been the pattern, but, you know, maybe maybe these Arsenal players are, are new players now. I mean, Theo Walcott, do you think he might finally be on the verge of that big breakthrough? Well, Walcott, I think, is a really interesting one, um, that he's, what, he's 27 now, um, which, I mean, I was reading Alex Ferguson's autobiography uh, for, for another book I'm writing uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there's a really interesting line in that when he was talking about when he first took over at United in 86, and... He said he, he kept on hearing, oh, you know, this winger, Peter Barnes, is packed with potential, loads of potential. And he said he was 29. And that was when he decided he would just ban the word potential. Um, that, that, you know, I think you see a lot of, with a lot of Arsenal's kids, you can, I mean, Oxide Chamberlain is still very young, but you look at maybe Kieran Gibbs, uh, Callum Chambers, maybe. And, okay, it was, some of them have had bad injuries, and, and that, you know, that gives some kind of excuse. But we keep waiting for them to do something. We keep saying, oh, you know, loads of potential. And they never quite get there. Now, what Wenger was saying on, on Saturday uh, about Walcott, who scored three goals this season already and in, in played all, you know, all six games, was sort of last March-April time when, when Walcott fell out of the first team um, and became aware that he was not going to go to the Euros, that England were not going to pick him, that he, he kind of sort of had a... A change of mentality and rather than sort of saying you know, I want to play through the middle I'm not really sure right wing's my position he, he just got on with, with being a right winger he, he employed a personal trainer he's apparently a lot stronger now he did a lot of work on core strength during the summer and I think what's really telling and this was something again that Wenger referred to that he said with, with, with Walcott he thought he'd always be 10% defender 90% attacker and now it's 50-50 and Walcott this season is averaging two tackles per game which might not sound like a huge number but it's four times more than he's ever managed in any full season previously. So it's as if Walcott, something in his brain has, has clicked. And he said, right, I, I can't sort of keep aspiring to be this, this sort of ideal version of me that, I, that I've foreseen this centre-forward scoring loads of goals. I've got to get on with making the most of what I've got. And that means knuckling down, being more disciplined, both in terms of, of his training and, and what he does on the pitch uh, d- defensively. You said, Jonathan, that th- this probably tells us more about Chelsea than it does about Arsenal, this result. And certainly Antonio Conte's demeanour in his post-match interview told us quite a lot. He looked really, really angry and it's the first flash of the intensity, I guess, that we've seen in post-match interviews from him. He says, we're a great team only on, on paper, not on the pitch. The pitch speaks, the pitch is the truth, the pitch is the most important thing for us, not the words, not the paper, and we must change this. As Ken pointed out in his column this morning, I'm not sure who it is that's been saying that Chelsea are great on paper in the first place, um, because certainly their previous manager had plenty of goals at them, but it, it certainly seems like there's, there's a dawning realisation there that Con- on Conte's part that he that this is a tough gig. Yeah, I think there's a couple of slightly strange things about just about the makeup of the squad. Uh, one is that this sort of feels like an old team. Uh, you know, you look at Ivanovic, you look at Cahill, and they just look sort of slow and sluggish. Even Matic, weirdly, although he's, you know, he's still in his mid-twenties, you know, he plays like an old player. And so you think, well, how, how, how can you be an old team if you've won the FA Youth Cup five of the last six years? Why is that throughput not happening? Why, why are kids not coming through to, to refresh this side? And there, well, there's something Mourinho, odd going on there. They had, they had Jose Mourinho as their manager for... For most of that time, I mean, he is not a player. Is not a manager who who you can really rely on to promote those forty nine youth players. Again? Well, whatever, whatever I that think number you was, find it was closer to sixty. But okay. to, you know, if if you've got Mourinho, the path to the first team is blocked. Yeah, I mean, that that's, that that's clearly Mourinho is an issue there. But I think it goes beyond Mourinho because it, it, it predates him the problem. You know, they weren't coming through. 
um, under previous managers either. And it's not as if Conte suddenly looked at the youth team and, and or looked at Loftus Cheek and thought, "Yeah, I know this kid's going to play," and given him loads of opportunities. So there does seem to be a disjunct there between what they're doing at youth level and, and, and getting those players through. But I think the other issue is that um, you know, Conte. You, I've seen a lot of people say he's a manager who prefers a back three. I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I think he prefers high pressing, and he, you know he wants to play with a back line that pushes up. And, and at Juventus, he, he did that with a back three partly because he, he found Basagli, Bonucci, and Chiellini there. Um, if you look back to, to when he was at Siena, he often played with a back four, but played that similar style of, of pushing up. So I don't think the back three thing is non-negotiable. But I, I, I think he doesn't like the four-two-three-one pattern or the four-three-three pattern. That, that was sort of um, that, he, that he's inherited. The squad has been built around that sort of shape, uh, and he's got this problem. It's the same problem that Andrea Boas had. That he wants to play with the high line, but his best defender by a million miles is John Terry. And when Terry isn't there, you know, there's chaos. And we saw that against Liverpool. We saw it against Leicester. We saw that on Saturday. Um, but then the solution to that is you bring Terry back, and you've got this this old slow man who's a very very good defender, but who can't play a high line. So that means Conte's always sort of working almost against the makeup of the squad. Now, my suspicion is that it wasn't his idea to bring David Luiz back. Uh, so then you have a, a problem of, of that uh, interface between the manager and, and the people doing the signings. Which yeah, well, that's a, I mean, that's, that's a historic. It's been a problem with Chelsea for a, for a long time. It's certainly something that managers complain about. But, you know... Was it not his decision to bring? I mean, does does he make any decisions? Maybe he should start insist on making some decisions. I mean, I remember speaking to you about this last season when Chelsea uh, announced that John Terry wasn't going to be staying. They they said in January, or actually he said he was the one who announced it. Uh, I'm I'm leaving. They haven't given me a contract extension. And we were talking about this, and you said, "Well, I'm not surprised because, uh, well, you know, when Conte, when Conte was announced as the as the new Chelsea manager, you said I don't think he's going to." You know, ask John Terry if he wants to stay because he doesn't really suit the style of play at all. Then they went on. Uh, you know, what I'm saying effectively is that if if he has to rely on this old slow defender as his main defender, it's actually his fault. But not having been stronger in in, in insisting Terry went. I mean, uh, yeah, maybe that is true. But maybe, may, you know, may, maybe he looked at that squad and thought, actually, I do need that kind of that personality, that character. Um, and and you know, that's the problem they've got. The Cahill looks a, a hugely diminished figure without Terry alongside him, um, and that they they really you know, they just don't have a, a commanding figure there, or not a commanding figure in the same way that, that Terry is. I mean, I know I know you think that Luis is a, is a great commanding figure, and I, I sort of accept that up to a point that there are times when his personality drags sides through games. Um, and, and certainly, I think you can make a case that that was that was true when when Champions when Chelsea won the Champions League, but that hasn't happened in the last three matches. Luis is sort of, I mean, maybe it's because he's just come back, but he's sort of wandering around, watching this sort of this nightmare happening around him. Yeah, um, I think he's depressed. Actually, I think he's. I saw he was at Gary Cahill um, doing that that uh, memorable piece with tubes. <laughs> uh, he revealed that David Luiz had been a bit reserved since he came back and I thought yeah that's because his heart is broken because he's, <laughs> he's had to come back here and he really didn't want to but you know I still think that, that Antonio Conte is making some mistakes uh, you know he, he's talking about paying attention and, and all this kind of stuff and, and the little details kind of stuff that Italian managers like to talk about they started the game against Arsenal exactly as they did against Liverpool really slow out of the blocks, had conceded before they, in this case, conceded three goals before they got their heads in the game. It's, it was the same mistake. This, they were 2-0 down against Liverpool, 3-0 down against Arsenal. It was the same mistake two weeks in a row. And, and another thing is that they signed N'Golo Kante in the summer. Uh, N'Golo Kante had been you know, the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League by a mile. For some reason, they think he needs to have Nemanja Matic in the team as well. They think they think Kante needs Matic next to him as as a as a babysitter. Kante doesn't need they've they've got the balance of the team wrong. That's Kante's Kante has got the balance of the team wrong. I mean, the balance of the team is wrong. I agree with that. Whether that's Kante's fault, whether that's just the players. I mean, the, the thing with with you know, with with um, with Kante is at Leicester he had Drinkwater alongside. Now Drinkwater 
you know, is is good on the ball. He does distribute the ball well. So you, you, I mean, I don't think Kante is terrible on the ball, but maybe he does need that presence alongside him, who who is a a slightly more composed figure. Uh, who is that player at Chelsea? There, there isn't one. You could maybe ask Fabregas to play deeper. Um, and if there's, a, there's a thing that's gone on with you know, ongoing Chelsea managers that they they don't seem to trust Oscar and Fabregas to be able to play together. And I, I find, I mean. If you promise a Fabregas, I kind of see that, but I don't understand why so many managers seem to have an issue with Oscar. It's as if they, you know, they look at his physique and see this kind of weedy little guy. But if you look at his tackling stats, he makes loads of tackles. You know, he, he regularly makes sort of two and a, we were talking about Walcott before making two tackles a game. Oscar's regularly making two point five three tackles per game. Yeah, I remember he was he was actually miles out in front of everyone else in the twenty fourteen World Cup in that exact. Uh, he he's always kind of thrown himself around. Yeah, he, you know he's he's a very modern Brazilian attacking midfielder in that you know he he has the creative qualities, um, but he also you know he, he he's disciplined. He works very hard. I mean, I I, I, I first saw him at the um, uh, under twenty World Cup in two thousand eleven when he had been a number ten and he was being asked to play on the left side of a diamond to accommodate Coutinho, and he was the best player in the tournament. He was brilliant in that role, and he, he just seemed to have everything. Um, and yet he seems to have got pigeonholed since he arrived in the Premier League as, as, as you know, just a number 10, just you know, purely um, uh, you know, a passer and a creator. And I, I think he is far, far more than that. And then, you know, just in terms of, of you talk about basic mistakes, I, I don't understand why Ivanovic. How, how is Ivanovic still in the team when you brought in Marcus Alonso and play at left back and you can show Basquiat across to the right? Um, I mean, there's all those stories that, uh, Ivanovic is, is Abramovich's man in the camp. Well, you start to wonder. Well, he obviously is. Well, yeah, yeah. but and, and yeah, and you wonder if that's starting to influence selection. All right, Jonathan, listen, thanks for putting up with our ridiculous sandwich analogy earlier. Thanks. For <laughs> it was it was a great pleasure. Thank you. I always get a little bit confused, actually. What what is a croque monsieur as compared to a croque madame? What's yeah, the difference see, there? I, I think I I think I made a mistake there. You know, I think a croque madame is the one with egg. Yes. So croque monsieur is like ham, cheese, like some kind of, you know, that sort of white sauce they have? Yeah. Basically a bit more cheese sprinkled on it and grilled and, you know, croque madame is all the same stuff just with a fried egg as well or a baked egg or whatever. Either of them very good for you? (laughs) Oh, certainly not very good for you. I don't think it was that bad for you either. I mean, as part of a balanced diet, I don't think there's any problem. Sure. You wouldn't. I'd say you'd probably have reached your full quota of cheese by the time you'd finished your croque. Yeah, maybe, I'd say you could leave the cheese until bread, the next day. Probably maybe, enough bread. Maybe the, at that point as well. Maybe the next day for lunch. The next day you wouldn't want to choose cheese. Yeah. So, but very tasty one. Yeah. I mean, I'd not. You know, we'll get the croque monsieur fans on on, on, on our backs now. But I, well, can we all just say we all enjoy a croque monsieur, mm-hmm. but as part of a balanced diet. Ooh, we're going to talk to John Brew now about your trip, John, to the London Stadium to see West Ham hammered, beaten 3-0 at home against Southampton. Things not going very well for them. Was it Was it your first visit to see West Ham there, the new stadium? Uh, it's actually my fourth trip there, you know, <laughs> because I, uh, I don't live too far. Um, I would say it's walkable, but uh, actually, one of the big things about the London Stadium is whichever way you go, whichever transport route you have, it's a bloody long way to get to that stadium. Uh, from uh, the train, you know, train station, tube, bus, you name it. Um, maybe that's something. To, maybe that's part of the problem for West Ham. This stadium is just this sort of remote spaceship in the middle of this wasteland, and <laughs> it, 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 it's it's a very strange experience going down there. That is that, that is unbelievable. These West Ham fans, where's the spirit of the Blitz, John? I mean, we're talking about having to walk, you know. Three quarters of a mile, by my recollection, <laughs> roughly that from from the bus stop or or tube, you know, to the to the stadium and this beautiful gleaming new stadium which they've got for half nothing. I mean, what's not to like? Well, you say beautiful, you say gleaming. Um, my experience of the place is, it's a bit tatty. Uh, it looks a bit like it's done a little bit on the cheap. Um, there are so many problems that I've seen, you know, with lifts not working. Uh, yesterday, the um, PA system didn't work, so that the, um, the PA announcer, when he's reading out the team, sounded like he was on some sort of digital delay. Um, it was 
it just doesn't work at the moment. There's so many sort of snags that it's hit. Um, one thing is, um, uh, Baroness Brady, uh, the, who's the vice chairman, CEO of the club, said in July, I think this quote was something along the lines of, this is the most successful stadium migration of all time. I'm not so sure that she's going to live by that statement just at the moment. I, I still can't, can't get over this. I mean, a couple of snags, that's to be expected with any, you know, moving of home. I mean, what do these West Ham fans literally expect to walk in and everything to be perfect and for them to be top of the league? This is astonishing. The ingratitude stuns me. This is a free stadium. They've been given a free stadium by, by the public and they're moaning about it? Yes, they are. And, but you know what football fans are like. And the thing is, though, you say that fans didn't move into a perfect stadium. Um, I, think, I, think the, I think what perhaps some West Ham fans might have thought is they were moving into somewhere like the Emirates. Now, you've been to the Emirates, Ken. You know, it's a purpose-built stadium. Everything there works perfectly. Um, the infrastructure is fantastic. That's not the case with the Olympic Stadium at the moment. Um, now, one of the things I must say about that, actually, is that in being um, something of a mess at the moment, they have retained something of those old West Ham traditions because down Upton Park, the bowling, whichever name you choose to give it, um, it was a it was a ramshackle old old dude down there. Um, yeah, with the, yeah, with the, the, one of the longest and most miserable public transport experiences I can ever remember having after every single game. I mean, this the I don't even know where that tube station was. But the queues, I've never seen such a long queue at a tube station as there was at the one that you had to get out of West Ham. Oh, but they were happy then, Ken. They were happy. No, they, they weren't, you know. Um, yeah, one of the things that we must say at this point, football fans like a moan, don't they? Um, and also, uh, th- th- there is this issue of segregation. There's also the issue of fans being made to sit down in their seats because the club wants to extend their licence to eventually make it 66,000 seats. But I suppose the biggest problem at the moment is that West Ham as a football team are absolutely rotten. Absolutely rotten. Yeah, they really are. Sorry to cut across you, Ken, but you sent me on a clip earlier, uh, about a 15-second clip of West Ham trying in vain to play football, John. Uh, it was, it's, there's a fresh air shot, there's a, an accidentally backwards kick of about 10 to 15 yards. Schoolboy errors, two or three of them in the same little short passage of play, which is incredible given the, some of the sumptuous football that they managed to play last year. Yes, yes. And, and I suppose the, the person at the, the heart of all this is the manager, Slavin Bilic, who I have to say, uh, someone that I have a great deal of respect for, actually. I've always thought he talks very well on the game. Uh, he's obviously a man of, of some intelligence. Yesterday, talked a load of incoherent wibble, it has to be said, after the game, um, aside from accepting responsibility for his team. Um, the, the problem that they've got is that they've got a, a poor defence, um, which is shielded badly by two players in uh, Cheku Kiate and Mark Noble, the erstwhile Irishman, um, that just seem to have given up the ghost, just seem to be able to perform at the moment. Um, and then you've got those attacking players, like Dimitri Payet, um, who's struggling a bit for form, Manuel Lanzini, who disappeared yesterday, and then they've got Simone Zazo up front, who, you know, he's blown from Juventus, it really isn't working out for him, but he's getting no service from the players behind him. It's a team which is malfunctioning badly, and there comes a point where you begin to wonder, or you begin to question, what kind of instructions Bilic is giving the team before he goes out, because it does look a bit like, to me, like the instructions are written on the back of his lucky strike packet or something like that, because this is a team that seems woefully underprepared for every game that I've seen him play. Yeah, it is um, striking as well, the contrast with Southampton in particular, because Southampton, uh, once again, uh, lost a, a bunch of players. Obviously, I mean, Pelé went to China a little earlier than that, but Victor Wanyama and Sadio Mane were both important players for them. And once again, they seem to be picking up where they left off, and and they seem to be quite a new manager. Um, they seem to be they seem to be doing pretty well. Yes, yes, and, and the thing you you must say is I think West Ham spent they spent spent thirty million in the transfer window, but they brought in eleven players. Now the problem is that you buy eleven players, you expect to make the team stronger, um, and some of those players to play a part 
in making the team stronger. I mean, Zaza's the obvious one from yesterday. But, I mean, Arbolera came in on a free transfer. He's played. He's forced to play at left-back. Uh, Nortbite, a guy who played uh, defensive midfield for Borussia Mönchengladbach, is forced to play right-back. Um, they, 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 again, a little like the stadium. I think they're trying to do things a little bit on the cheap. And it's meant that the team is no better. And the thing is, Upton Park... Um, Sometimes could give that team 10 points a season because when it got going, I mean, you've been down there, Ken, you could, the atmosphere was absolutely sensational. It, you know, it really did often carry that team over the line. This season, the new stadium with the difficulties of moving in, the fact of um, the, 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 uh, I suppose the, the, the players equating themselves with playing there. Um, the Atkinson Stanley manager the other night was saying, sitting down on the bench, you, you couldn't really see what was going on. And it was almost like watching a team on FIFA or something like that. Um, it's just so difficult at the moment because I think that stadium is probably going to lose them 10 points. At that point, you're beginning to think that they're in relegation trouble and actually the rest of the way that they're playing suggests that this is a season for a relegation battle anyway. OK, John, listen, good to talk as always. We're not giving up on that Mark Noble dream, by the way, but thanks very mm-hmm. much for chatting to us. Well, I, I, I still think you can do a job for the lads, yeah. <laughs> thanks, John. Cheers, lads. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Oh, remind me to uh, never be a landlord renting out a place to John there. That's <laughs> not snag list would just be... Jesus, John. Yeah, I kind of... I mean, it's not, nothing's perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I keep the deposit brewing. No, I, I actually was thinking to myself, is it, was it really that far away? I mean, I remember... I, you know, I, my experience of being at that stadium, it was during the London Olympics. They had, obviously, a big exclusion zone around the stadium. It was a bit of a rigmarole, not least because you had to go through security gates and also the bus that you got on from, like, the train station. There was a kind of a bus... Because you needed to stay within this exclusion zone, it was there was a lot of stuff around the Olympics that won't be there for for regular Premier League games. It was quite big, but I was looking at it even just on Google Maps. It's not really that far. I mean, you're talking about maybe six or seven hundred meters from the stadium to uh, Stratford International, which is the main train station near it. But there is also bus stops and other, you know, DLR and various other transport networks around it. So. Bloody hell, Owen. All I have to say is... <laughs> go mean, to some of those stadiums. Try to look on the bright side here. Go, go to some of those stadiums in France if you want to see trips into the middle of nowhere to you know, Lyon. Oh, yeah. Lille or, or Lyon. That's Lille, places yeah. are well out of Bordeaux, not exactly... Yeah, I mean, it, and the, tra- the transport links to Stratford are actually really good. It's just from the transport links to the stadium, that's where you've got to walk a bit. But, you know, chin up, lads. Just watching this clip again, Ken. I should credit... At man like Smalling on Twitter, he's he's the person who tweeted. You've sent it on to me. Oh yeah. Corner kick taken by West Ham. Oh, there's a fresh air. Ball now is on the edge of the box, whipped in left foot. Okay, still a chance to redeem the situation. Oh no, this player's just kicked it twenty yards backwards. It's, oh, another guy kicked it twenty yards backwards. Oh no, Southampton are on the break and probably about to score again. Really stunning. Um, you got to get sequence the, of an aptitude. You got to get the direction of your kick, the general direction, right? You know, you either pass the ball backwards, forwards, or sideways. Or variations mm. thereof. Mm. Once you choose one, it's pretty bad. It's a pretty bad mistake well, to end up with the well, opposite result. See, well, I'm not entirely sure that you've you've thought about thought this one through okay. because cricketing batsman, one of the one of the the defining moments in cricket history was when a player decided that instead of hitting to the leg side or to the uh, offside. Mm-hmm. Or driving the ball back down towards mm-hmm. uh, the bowler, that you could also bowler. score multiple runs by edging the ball, yep. not obviously directly, you know, over your own head, but there are a lot of runs to be scored back there. Of course, there are now also reverse sweep. No, not reverse sweep. What's the name of that that shot that they play? Where it's basically over their right hand shoulder if you're a right handed mm. batsman. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, 
that West Ham may have stumbled upon something here. <laughs> but those are delib- you're talking about deliberate actions. I'm well, talking about deliberate actions. Exactly. Well, complete ex- accident here. There is well, one direction oh. you rarely see the are ball. Are you sure, Owen? <laughs> Pretty sure. Just watch it again while you were talking. Well. There's one direction that you rarely see the ball pass with any great um, profit to the player doing passing, and that is straight up into the air. Literally straight up in a vertical line. I'm shocked ride. by both of your lack of imagination. I mean, well, West Ham are trying to do something a little different. And all you can say, well, it's never been done before, so obviously it's wrong. Well, no, fair enough. And, and uh, You get under the ball. See, what you do is you boot the ball up in the air, 40 feet, get a lot of numbers in there, discombobulate the opposition, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the rest pretty much writes itself. Well, we'll uh, <laughs> see how it turns out. <laughs> got to end this nonsense, lads. I've got this book in front of me, Drama in the Bahamas, by Dave Hannigan, Muhammad Ali's last fight. Been greatly enjoying it so far. Going to finish this off and chat to Dave in our other podcast today, where we're also going to be speaking about Arnold Palmer, the legacy of Arnold Palmer, also Roy McElroy's win. There was huge controversy in the women's Gaelic football final, where uh, the Dublin are appealing for a replay over a point that wasn't given for some strange reason. Well, for the reason well, that the umpires thought it was wide, but it mm-hmm. wasn't. But the biggest issue is that the technology which is available in Croke Park isn't used for ladies Gaelic football. Yes, they, well, they've, they've admitted uh, defeat on the appeal front, but yeah. yes, we'll be talking uh, at, in la- at length on uh, that issue. Owen. So that's all happening today. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Thanks for listening. Cheers. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.